0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter, and you're listening to Eighth Layer Insights. Okay, I've got a question for you. What pops into your mind when I say the word cybersecurity? If you're like most people, your mind almost immediately conjures up images of shadowy figures hunched over keyboards launching attacks. Or maybe you thought of a crowd of people frantically responding to an event in a situation room. If you're more human focused, you may have pictured someone picking a lock or tailgating through a door or stealing someone's badge without them noticing. In all of these situations, your mind considered the word cybersecurity and immediately jumped to images that had to do with the arms race, the battle, the excitement. You know, what most of us think of as the fun part. But if you're a cybersecurity professional, you know that, yeah, that's the battle, but that's not the everyday, hour-to-hour reality for most people. And you probably wouldn't even want it to be. Not too many people can deal with back-to-back days of war rooms, multiple sleepless nights, or the anxiety that can come with multiple days of physical penetration tests. And those parts of cybersecurity that I mentioned earlier aren't even universal across all roles. There are tons of jobs in cybersecurity that are completely unrelated to the pictures that we tend to conjure up. But let's think about this for a minute. There are some pretty cool skills that most people think about when it comes to cybersecurity. And many of those skills could actually get you arrested if you use them in the wrong context. So how can people learn these skills in a safe way? How can they play with these skills? And how can we harness the excitement behind these aspects of cybersecurity in a way that satisfies curiosity and can bring new people into the field while also helping them understand the realities of the daily job. That's what this episode is about. We'll be talking about log sport, capture the flag competition, simulations, and even pickpocketing and magical thinking. And to do so, I've invited four guests. You'll hear from Elith Dennis, Chris Kirsch, Devian Olaf, and Gerald Ozier. Let's dive in.
2: If you're not really into something, if you're not engaged, then learning is a chore. And most well-known for winning
3: the Social Engineering Capture the Flag contest at DEF CON in 2019.
2: Gamification looks at the fact that so many people enjoy playing games. People lose hours and hours of time on it, but why? Because it's enjoyable. The lock itself is not an impenetrable steel wall. As
4: a defender, it buys you
5: time. Pickpocketing I got into because my dad got pickpocketed on the metro in Paris right next to me. You have to figure out how to play the game.
2: What does every building have? They have locks and other doors. What do they use? They have keys. Where do you put all the keys? So if you can blend these concepts of enjoyable activity with educational development, you've got a, a secret sauce.
5: Magic has a lot of parallels to security, for example, you can play with expectations that people have, then you can use that to trick them.
3: Developing that critical thinking component will do many, many wonderful things for you in so many different careers.
1: On today's show, we explore how to use gamification and play to up-level our cybersecurity skill sets, and we learn the value of creating spaces that allow us to play virtual war games, safely and legally. Welcome to Eighth Layer Insights. This podcast is a multidisciplinary exploration into the complexities of human nature and how those complexities impact everything from why we think the things that we think to why we do the things that we do and how we can all make better decisions every day. This is Eighth Layer Insights. Season two, episode eight. I'm Perry Carpenter. We'll be right back after this message.
0: So, what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of security, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors at Know Before can tell you, human error is how most organizations get compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out later in the show.
1: If you listen to Season 1, Episode 1 of this podcast, you might remember one of my guests, Rob McCollum. On that episode, he mentioned a story format called Save the Cat. It's a basic three act structure that would be very familiar to us in western culture. It's the basis of many, many movies and blockbusters and novels. If I were to summarize it, it's basically there's a cat that's the the thing that's in jeopardy, there's a cat, the cat gets into trouble, a hero or group set out to save the cat, there's lots of trials, adventures, and setbacks, and then, ultimately, the hero or the group prevail. They save the cat. The hero wins. So, you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, that's interesting. Why mention that? Here's why. In Act Two of that system, there's a section called Fun and Games, and that's really where the author or the scriptwriter or the TV or movie producer set out to deliver on all the promises of the genre that they are writing for. If it's a spy movie, that's where the gadgets start getting used. If it's a mystery, that's where you see the brilliant detective and the diabolical villain decoding clues and laying false trails. If it's an action movie, that's where car chases happen or where the hero gets to show off their amazing fighting skills. You get the picture. That's where the story is really delivering on what's called the promise of the premise. Those elements that are naturally expected by any audience familiar with that specific genre. And in a way, I think that there's a promise of the premise in cybersecurity. We know that we're protecting things. We have an adversary, whether that's our own human nature or whether that's an unseen foe just waiting for us to slip up. But not everybody gets to do the fun and exciting battle parts of the job. And even those that do need safe ways to level up their skills or just have fun. Because if cybersecurity were a movie, That fun and game section would be things like hacking, and counter hacking, and breaking into buildings, and tricking people into giving away critical information, or even things like pickpocketing and sleight of hand. That's where gamification comes in. And it's something that cybersecurity has a long history with. It's an area where year after year, there continue to be exciting new developments. Okay, I just used a term that begs a question. What is gamification? That's a word that gets thrown around a lot, and there are a few meanings that people tend to assign to it. Let me go ahead and read a definition from gamify.com. It says, gamification is the application of game design elements and game principles in non-game contexts. It can also be defined as a set of activities and processes to solve problems by using or applying the characteristics of game elements. Game and game-like elements have been used to educate, entertain, and engage for thousands of years. Some classic game elements are points, badges, and leaderboards. There's a lot of value in treating skills acquisition and training as a game. It makes things less intimidating, and we just engage with it in a different way. We get a bit competitive, and we have fun, and most importantly, we start to view the world a bit differently as we assimilate that new skill. One method I like to use to help illustrate some fundamental concepts of security is lockpicking. It's a great way to illustrate the concept of vulnerabilities and exploits. Everybody has locks, and lock picking is this visceral act. You're using physical tools on a physical object, and that moment when you successfully pick the lock, when you hear and you feel that click, or you see the cylinder rotate, that's magical. I am Deviant Olaf. I am.
4: Casually known as a physical penetration specialist, although also professionally known as that, since that is my job. My job is to get into places where I am not ostensibly supposed to be. Uh, I like to think that nine times out of ten, it's because I've been invited and hired and there's legal paperwork backing me up. But that's the gig. I am also a locksmith, a safe technician, a safe and vault inspector.
1: Devant is a member of the Board of Directors of the U.S. Division of Tool, that's T-O-O-O-L and that stands for the Open Organization of Lockpickers. He's also authored two books on lockpicking, Practical Lockpicking, A Physical Penetration Tester's Training Guide, and Keys to the Kingdom, Impressioning, Privilege Escalation, Bumping, and Other Key-Based Attacks Against Physical Locks. Deviant, for you, what is it that you most love about this practice of physical penetration testing and finding vulnerabilities and locks? It's a really fun career. I'm very happy that I've fallen into it the way I did.
4: It's very rewarding, especially not just because you get to feel cool breaking into places, but remediating the problems that someone like I will find is not a deal breaker and a bank breaker you know, we we all kind of have that digital network side, at least in our awareness, if not our career, a lot of people in this field are, are very closely tied to network penetration specialists and the like. Well, if you tell someone, well, your network is vulnerable, or we did an app sec review and your web app is full of holes, that could be tens, if not hundreds of thousands in remediation. Uh, I can knock a building dead. And then I sit down with the execs and they say, so you might be into it for a few hundred dollars to fix the way those doors, those door hinges are installed. <laughs> and it's great. It's great that I get to show something shocking, but also shock people with how easy it is to fix most of the things I find.
1: What makes lock picking and um, all the things that revolve around that such a valuable skill to understand? I've always enjoyed the fact that lockpicking is
4: a very low difficulty on ramp to security mindset and security thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm very grateful with the graciousness and space that a lot of larger security events, many digitally focused security events have given a spot for lockpicking for a very long time And the sort of the lockpick village is what we've been calling it ever since uh, I took it over. There was lockpicking at DEFCON and other events back in the day. I never like to lay claim to founding any of this. Lockpicking and hackers have gone hand in hand for a long time, but it was very underground. I was invited by Dark Tangent and Russ and some others at the early days of Def Con to really use a dedicated space for it. Uh, others had just kind of been by the pool with some locks or they'd have a little slot in the hallway with a table that they kind of gorilla put yeah. together. And this was when Def Con was at the Riviera, the old Riviera casino. They said, Hey, we're getting to move to the Riviera and they have these things called skyboxes that overlook the con floor. We don't know what we're going to put up there. Uh, can you can you think of something with locks? And I said, yeah. Well, let's start something called the Lockpick Village. Let's have a all under one room. The motto of the, the teaching villages. Gosh, now DEF CON has what over twenty these villages. The motto started with with learn, touch, do. Three simple words. Not only can you hear someone teach you about it, but you can immediately go hands on with what was just being described, and not in a uh, show and tell sort of way, but like here, actually use the tools, do the thing. I just told you, you can do it too. And it demystifies the idea that not all security and not all security products have the same purpose. Something I love is people make fun of things like, let's say you have an apartment building with a fence around it. Right. And people have yeah. literally send me videos like, look at my building. They don't understand security. And it's we'll uh, call it a five foot tall fence. You could jump over it, I guess. But there's a little gate on that fence, and there's like a latch. Okay, well you put your code in or your fob. But look at my lids is worthless. I can reach my hand over it, pull the handle on the inside. That makes for good TikTok kind of fodder. But that lock is doing a job. It's just not doing the job you think it's doing. That lock and that fence aren't acting as an impenetrable barrier, but they are demarcating your property. And they are removing what is, I would call the oops excuse. There is such a thing in this world as a symbolic lock. And that is something that people don't understand until you show them how weak certain locks are. Why would anyone use this? And I'd say, well, it's perfect on that apartment fence because what's that doing? It's preventing someone who is on premises, sniffing around, maybe doing something they shouldn't be doing. If there's no fence at all, The person goes, oops, I was uh, looking for a different address. Well, literally, if you reached over a fence and you reached the inside handle, you know you did that. There's no, (laughs) oops, this isn't shop class. That's enough sometimes. It's enough for that outer layer. The problem is when we start using those cheap hardware store locks on real sensitive spaces and assets. Because people, until you go hands-on and show them, look, this is not a high security lock. People don't understand that. And demystifying that distinction is something that we're always very proud to do.
1: So my first time at DEFCON was at the Riviera, mm-hmm. and I immediately went to the Lockpick Village, and it was the most fun thing that I had done in that entire time. So I skipped all the talks, <laughs> spent a ton of time there, right and, and and loved it. And um, for me, and when I show people in my family, it's like, all right, here's a low-level Master Lock and just a simple rake and I can open this thing in like less than a second. It's really eye-opening. What is the parallel for you when it comes to the way that locks are engineered and some of the inherent flaws in the manufacturing process? What are the parallels to you uh, from that physical environment to a digital environment?
4: So I'll get into my STS degree here, my science, technology, society degree. There's a lot of what is known as determinism, right? Technological determinism and momentum. There's a mindset in the marketplace of, well, we've always done it this way. And it's that's sales have been good. Why change it? And I'm not calling out any manufacturer in particular. I'm sure some people are thinking I'm throwing shade at some of the big names. And it, in a sense, maybe we all know the big names you see at hardware stores. Well, they've been making a very pretty penny doing the same thing for almost a hundred years. And if there's no market pressure for them to change, why would they? In the software and digital space, thankfully there has been a great deal of market pressure you can't just have a simple system with a username and an eight character limited password and no login brute force checks or anything no repeat login checks the market has said hey this is really vulnerable this looks bad we have to do better the fact that that doesn't happen in parallel in the physical world shows the real value of educating people of look this is this is bad i'm not i'm not considering any company A bad company if they aren't responding to market pressure, right? Like if customers keep buying your $5 lock, even though you make a $50 lock, that's not your fault. The sales units keep going off the shelf. It's our job to educate the public the way we did with digital security saying, hey, turn on encryption. Hey, turn on multi-factor login authentication. The public now kind of demands that of many of their digital software and service providers. And that's why the industry had to answer I want to see the public continue to demand that. We saw this in little ways. Uh, Let's go back a decade or more now about bump keys, right? The use of a bump key was known to locksmiths, but it wasn't widespread in terms of general public knowledge. Our friends, especially in the Netherlands, really publicized this in white papers and in the news media. This is CBS 5 Eyewitness News. Hello with Channel 5. I want to break into your house.
1: But real burglars don't ask. And with a special
4: key touted on the internet,
1: they can easily... And
4: now you see anti-clump or anti-bump, you know, as a feature on tons of locks. You see American brands even responding. Well, we have bump halt and we have this anti-bump feature. The market responded only through public education.
1: Okay, so lock picking is a great way to help people understand that vulnerabilities and exploits exist everywhere. And everyone has locks, so this literally hits close to home. It's a great analog to what's going on in our digital reality. And let's be honest, lockpicking is just plain fun. But now let's move on to some areas that are more digital. Let's think about how we can gamify our understanding of the data that we leak every day. That's where OSINT and Capture the Flag competitions come in. OSINT, if you're not familiar with that acronym, is O-S-I-N-T, and it stands for Open Source Intelligence. It's really the gathering aspect of all the data that's out there and freely available. Capture the flag competitions have emerged as something really important within the cybersecurity field because not only do they help us level up some of our very specific skills related to cybersecurity, but they also serve as a fantastic on-ramp for people that are interested in the field that are looking to understand a little bit more. And to help us think through this topic, let me bring in another expert. Meet Aleth Dennis.
3: I am a senior consultant at Critical Insight. I focus predominantly on adversarial simulation of things like phishing and vishing, as well as helping my pen testers to gain access through social engineering. I also dabble in more blue team focused things. So I get to work on both sides of the security landscape, helping to both defend and attack, which is kind of neat because I I get to paint myself purple and call myself a good guy, (laughs) which is fantastic. Um, But yeah, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Aleith ranked first
1: place in the Social Engineering Capture the Flag competition at DEFCON back in 2019. That's a competition where the contestants capture flags by successfully tricking an organization's employees into giving away information that would be helpful to a cyber attacker. And successfully prepping for that competition requires gathering a lot of open source intelligence on the target organization. You you talked a little bit about the fact that you were in a completely different industry, completely different skill set. Somehow it clicked that you realized that you would be good at this social engineering stuff. Um, Describe that journey a little bit, because it is interesting. There's been a couple other folks who have made these really big career Leaves like you and Rachel Toback, and a couple others that I'm aware of that have changed the entire focus of their life. How did you get in that room in the first place coming from a different background?
3: So it's kind of a weird, weird thing. Um, Tracy, who is also Infosec Sherpa on t- Twitter, she was a librarian and she is now in information security. And I think that that is just the most crazy, amazing story to share because you you have people that are coming in from so many different roles in completely different industries that you would think were never well-suited for information security. And I think that what we're seeing now is that people have these very easily transferable skills that they've collected over the course of their career which spans maybe a decade or two or three and they're able to repurpose those skills within information security and not necessarily have to be, you know, technical geniuses when it comes to what we think of as elite hacking or pen testing and coding and development and things like that
1: so How did your previous life or career fit into all of this?
3: I had been working in marketing and like, was Google AdWords certified. And so this kind of sparked my interest because I'm like, I've been trying to get people to click on links for years. And so uh, I was like, you know, I learned about the SCCTF, the social engineering capture the flag competition. And just all I knew at that point was they get people to sit in a booth and call a company and try to elicit information from them. And I thought, oh my God, that's insane. I could never do anything like that. That's nuts. I'm literally the type of person who will send 158 emails before picking up the phone just to avoid talking to people. <laughs> and so I was like, this is fascinating. So I managed to watch a lot of the calls. and That was, that was the year that they had gaming companies as the targets. So they were targeting all of like the video game and toy manufacturing companies. Um, And there were a few people that, you know, it was, it was clear that this was not easy because there were people that would go in and call their numbers and just get voicemail, 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 and they were done. Their 20 minutes was up and it was time to get out of the booth. And it was like heartbreaking. (laughs) I decided between that year and the next year, I was like, I want to compete. And I was like am I ready for this? And so I kind of like took, I took a minute to kind of, you know, think it over. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to apply. You know, I'll look cool because I submitted an application. I could just be like, oh, I raised my hand, but they didn't accept me. And then they accepted me. So that kind of sucked me in to the whole social engineering thing. And it's kind of all downhill from there.
1: You sign up to do this. They essentially lock you into a mostly soundproof booth, Um, though I think you probably still right. hear some of that crowd noise come through and that's probably nerve wracking as well. <laughs> um, but, de- but describe what's going through your head at that moment.
3: It has like the felted, like carpeted exterior with the windows um, is the best way I can describe it. So you have a window right in front of you and then you've got a window to your side that's in the door where you can see the contest runner who's dialing the numbers for you. Um, but it, it feels really, really helpless, but you also feel like you are under a microscope because yes, you're sitting in a box, like you're safe because it's essentially like a coffin (laughs) you're safe. And it's kind of like, you know, you've got a giant microphone in front of your face, you've got headphones on and you're sitting on a stool and then you've got like a GoPro in the corner of the box that's pointed right at you. And that is being streamed out to these giant projected screens on either side of the room, so everybody in the room can see you and watch every Twitch. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was—I had my list of numbers, and I had some notes about my pretext, and I had um, like a list of the flags that I was trying to get the information that I needed to elicit. That was it. That's all I had with me, um, and like a pencil. <laughs> I don't know why I brought a pencil, but I did. And so I just remember feeling like there were just 20,000 eyes on me. And that is really nerve wracking, especially for somebody who's pretty much an introvert. (laughs) I'm not really used to being on a stage. I never competed in sports in school. Like I just kind of slunk to the back of the room and was an observer of a lot of things. So this was the first time I was in like, honestly, this was the first time I was in this kind of situation since like doing an oral report in high school where you had to stand in front of the class and present something. And it was like all those nerves just like came back. But as soon as they're like, okay, go, and they start the timer, it's like, you just have to let all those anxieties and fears drop away and just kind of make everything around you black. So that you can focus on what you're supposed to do. And you just, you know, call, you know, number numbered number one and spoof numbered number two, and you go. And you just can't think about anything else. And I think having that insanely high pressure situation almost kind of helps you block out all the other factors because you go into like fight or flight mode and you've got to fight. I overthought it to death. But I also completely screwed up my strategy as far as amassing the highest volume of points in the shortest amount of time. So after that, I was like, this is now my mission. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to do better next year. And now that I know how the points work, I'm not going to spend three weeks getting ready for this in completely the wrong way. So then I competed the following year in 2019, and I just did one very well crafted pretext and I targeted remote regional salespeople for this company and this was before work from home was cool <laughs> and uh, it went off without a hitch there was zero people that pushed back everybody was cooperative and um, it was like everything that I learned from the first experience plus devoting a significant amount of my time in the years between competitions to just learning everything that I could about human behavior, applied psychology, social engineering. Um, Social engineering in the context of things like marketing, acting, and like everything that I could get my hands on um, was really what put things over the top. I decided, well, I'll get some points on the board and then I'll move on to something else. But what's the something else? And I did a lot of digging on their glass door and found out they had regional salespeople that kind of turned over pretty frequently, as salespeople do. And these people were responsible for going out to the retail locations that sold the products that this company made, and like stocking the shelves, selling more products, that kind of stuff. So they had company laptop, company cell phone, company car, all kinds of cool stuff. Um, And they were salespeople, so they're used to getting called after hours especially because a lot of these locations are like, you know, quickie 24 hour Mart type joints. And so I was like, I wonder if they'll pick up the phone more consistently than trying to target the headquarters. So I try to get headquarter numbers. Every single one of them went to voicemail after hours. And I was like, bummer so i'm like i'm gonna have to get a little bit more creative so i used a uh, osint tool that i have to get the cell phone numbers company cell phone numbers for all of these salespeople, and then i compiled a list of all the salespeople, and i decided i'm going to call these people on the day that i'm competing thursday after 5 30 p.m time of the look like the headquarter company which is an eastern time and see if they answer the phone and so I would call every Thursday. I'd call all of them for the weeks leading up to the competition and call all of them and I'd grade them. Like, did they answer the phone? Did they sound friendly? Did they sound helpful? Um, that was like a 10. If I got voicemail, it was a 0. If I got somebody that was like, hello, <laughs> it was like a 2 or a 3 because they're probably not going to be eager to help me. Um, and so I graded them all through these, you know, several phone calls that I made to each person. And then I, tallied up the scores and the ones with the highest scores were the ones I was gonna call first. And so that's how I figured out the order of people I was gonna call. Um, And so I called the first salesperson and he was like the most energetic, positive-sounding person that I had contacted, because we were allowed to call, you had to remain on mute, you couldn't engage with these people at all prior to the competition, but you could just listen to them, answer the phone, and hang up. And I'd been spoofing like like a number that if they put it into Google, it would show as like a scammer, like fraud, suspected spam call number for the area that they were in. So I went kind of a little nuts on this, but I took it to 11 and it worked out because every single person I called that was one of those regional salespeople were extremely cooperative. And they answered all my questions because I told them, Hey, I'm Bethany. I'm calling from the headquarters located in the town the headquarters is in. (laughs) I'm helping IT and it looks like your computer hasn't connected to the VPN in a while. So I just wanted to make sure that before we ship out replacement laptops, because we're getting ready to replace all the laptops for our sales fleet, for our remote employees, that we have the right software and everything installed for you before I ship this thing out. And so we would just go down the list. What type of computer do you have? Is it this one? Yes. Do you have this type of operating system? Yes. Do you have this type of mail client? Yes. Cause I knew all this stuff from my OSIN and it was just a matter of them saying, confirm, 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 rather than having to think about it and tell me an answer. So what it ended up looking like was Hi, I'm me. Can I ask you a few questions? Sure. Flag, 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 flag for every single one of these calls. And I would just, yep, that's great. All right. Do you prefer FedEx or UPS? Flag. And I'll talk to you later. Bye. (laughs) And uh, with the last person, I I ended up skipping one. I was like, no, I don't want to call that one. I'll call five instead of four, whatever it was. I don't know why I thought that. I just thought the guy that I planned not to call sounded a little more egotistical and you know like a jerk so i called the next one and the guy picks up the phone and he's like confused as to why i'm calling him and i could hear it in his voice but i was like oh gosh and he goes i am actually not working right now because i'm three months into my four months of eternity leave and i was like oh crap so i thought you know he's gonna shoot me down so i might as well just apologize profusely get off the phone and try the next one well, he goes, let me go get my computer.
1: <laughs> oh, nice.
3: And I was like, oh my gosh, like I was, I was like, I'm so sorry. And he's like, no, let me go get my computer and I'll help you out. I'm like, what? And so he goes and gets the computer and like, while well, he's you know, busy opening it and turning it on, I'm like, so I assume you have this computer, this make and model, it'll just be on the lid. He's like, yep. And so I just went into it, I was like, that's so crazy. I just had a baby too. And I like looked at my daughter in the audience <laughs> <laughs> and the whole crowd is just freaking dying. But yeah, so I finished that call and the audience just lost their minds.
1: We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor.
0: And now we return to our sponsor's question about forms of social engineering. Know Before will tell you that where there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need new school security awareness training. See how your security culture stacks up against NoBefore's free phishing test. Get it at nobeforecom test. That's nobeforecom test.
1: Welcome back. So these types of competitions are useful in a few different ways. Over the past few years, we've seen that they're very useful in helping to encourage people to try out new skills and actually move into security from non-security careers. Rachel Toback, who was a guest last season, is a great example of that. And for Relief, winning this competition allowed her to do a hard pivot from the marketing world to being a full-time social engineer and penetration testing consultant. Another way these types of competitions are useful is that they're safe, legal sandboxes for security professionals to learn new skills they allow curious and motivated people to learn and test skills in ways that are legal and have guardrails. In other words, that means they can learn and test their skills in ways that won't get them arrested or break someone's system. And that's a great segue for us to spend a few minutes talking about simulations. Let's say that someone wants to learn about ethical hacking or how to defend against hackers. What's the best way to do that? Well, one way might be to read about the techniques and uh, obtain the different tools and then wait until they need to use those skills in real life. Or they could go spend hours or days setting up lab environments and trying to simulate things from an attacker's perspective or a defender's perspective, or they could rent or subscribe to someone else's virtual lab. But there's one other option that's kind of like having a lab environment, though it's not quite as robust or real world. That's a virtual system, replicating specific systems, applications, and vulnerabilities to let you test certain skills from an attacker or defender's perspective. Some of these are fully black box environments where you just go in trying to find all the flags. You can think of this as something similar to an escape room where there's a game master who's laid out the environment. They've left clues. You might find a clue by learning about a web application and then viewing the source on that web page and... Maybe then when you view the source, you find another clue, like a hard-coded password in the comments, or a reference to another website, and successfully exploiting one system then unlocks clues that lead you to the next, and the next, and the next, and so on. And then there are other games that are more like Battleship, where you're playing against another human opponent, where you and a team are playing against another team. And that way you get the thrill and the frustration of battling an adversary that is thinking and reacting based on your every move.
2: Like, if you're not really into something, if you're not engaged, then learning is a chore.
1: That's Gerald Osher.
2: I'm a cybersecurity practitioner for... About seventeen years, love love the field um, so much that I went to uh, higher ed and got a couple degrees in, it, including a PhD in cyber operations from Dakota State. And I also run a YouTube channel called Simply Cyber, which is it was originally designed to be a YouTube channel for people looking to make or take a cybersecurity career further faster. And over the last couple years, it's really evolved into its own living, breathing community with. Thousands of members who are actively participating and contributing, helping each other out. I also teach at the Citadel Military College in their cyber sciences department, shaping the minds of the cadets there as they think about the way that cybersecurity is relevant in today's society and in the military theater.
1: I invited Gerald because he recently took a position at ThreatGen, ThreatGen is a cybersecurity gamification platform that's developed what they call the red versus blue game.
2: There's certain things that we learn because we either have to, right? If you've ever been going through elementary school and you like, it's Tuesday morning, you don't want to get up and go to school because school is boring. You don't, it's not fun, right? Well, gamification looks at the fact that so many people enjoy playing games, whether it's Angry Birds on your phone or Candy Crush, one of those ones that people play on their phones or the more involved first person shooters that my kids personally get really deep into. They can spend hours of time on it, but why? Because it's enjoyable. So if you can blend those concepts of enjoyable activity with educational development, you've got a, a secret sauce where people are Yearning to absorb that knowledge. And we've seen it across multiple capacities within the cybersecurity industry, which is fantastic as far as, you know, simulating so many of the activities that we do, but kind of, I almost want to say, cherry picking some of the juicier, sexier kind of scenarios um, in order to make that gamification fun. Because, Perry, you know, and I know, <laughs> like setting up a lab and dealing with dependencies and the wrong Python version and All these other things, they rob you of the joy of actually doing what the game is. And a lot of these platforms are basically abstracting that level of setup for you so you can just enjoy the good bits.
1: Do you think, and I'm not trying to take you down a, a negative road here, but I'd like to get your thoughts on if we're really just cutting to the fun parts, do you think that there's a downside to that? And by that, I mean... Is it possible that somehow we set people up to think that the cybersecurity career is just these fun parts?
2: So that's an interesting observation. And I would say on the red side of things, meaning the offensive security, if you are just cherry picking Um, then it doesn't necessarily map to reality, right? So like a pen tester, for example, they're going to have to do appropriate recon and infiltrate or pop a box or get the crown jewels and then have to write a report and debrief the client. And with a lot of these gamification platforms, you, you don't do the report writing, you don't do the debrief. So you're not getting that full rich experience of, you know, like trade school, right? But what I would argue to that point is, A typical student may never pursue or look at or sniff anything cybersecurity because it's boring or it's I don't get technology or whatever. And by at least abstracting and giving them some on-ramp into the industry, they can get a taste and a feel, start exposing themselves to concepts and technologies, begin talking with other people, networking, developing a, a community. And then once the train's already moving, there's some inertia behind it. Well, then you've got something there. Well, you know, what is this other part? Well, it's it's not as fun, but like I see how it relates and ties into the overall picture. And if I want to get a job doing this cool thing I really right. enjoy, then I should understand these other pieces. So I, I I agree, it's not a one size fits all. You can't gamify the nine to five grind, right? <laughs> I and mean, if you could, you might have yeah. uh, you might have a million dollar idea, but but you can make it as an on ramp into the industry.
1: And I'm, w- I'm wondering if there's a way to simulate, and I'm not saying inject boredom into the game because that defeats the purpose, but if there's a way to simulate some of that, say you're doing um, enumeration, you know, stuff that could take a long time or some of the other OSINT gathering pieces to where you can show kind of like the clock progressing mm-hmm. um, as you're doing this. This this thing that is now taking you two minutes might take somebody else three hours to do. And just to give that understanding to the person that's on the other side of the screen.
2: Yeah, that is interesting and and, and super challenging, right? Because like right. all of these games and platforms, they want to keep you heads down, dialed into it and introducing some of the, the ho-hum realities of the industry are definitely going to turn the people off. I'm not sure. I think at least a uh, disclaimer or uh, some kind of call-out would be sufficient. You know, one example that just comes to mind right away is like when you're running Nmap. Nmap is such like a entry-level onboarding tool that is included in almost every single getting orientated to cybersecurity course. And when you see it in a video, you hit go and the results come back instantly, right? And when you hit go on yep. an end map reel, it, it could just sit there for minutes and minutes and you don't even really have any feedback as to what's going on. So I, I definitely um, feel you there. I, th- I think there needs to be some type of balance with it. I will say that one one game that comes to mind within the industry that I really think has made some efforts at capturing some of these non-direct Experiences is Black Hills Information Security's Backdoors and Breaches. It's a card game produced by Black Hills Information Security, and it's effectively like Dungeons and Dragons, if you want to think of it that way. There is an incident master who is crafting this elaborate cyber attack, and then the players have cards that allow them to do things like do endpoint analysis or look at the sim, do network traffic capture you know, it's all the things that you would do as an incident responder. They have these things called injection cards, and this is where I'm going with this kind of, the, the indirect elements of reality. So, one such injection card that comes to mind is, you throw it down and it says, the legal team has entered the room and wants a debrief from your most senior incident responder on what is going on. Whoever the best player is of the, of the party, is no longer allowed to play the rest of the game and and it's interesting because this really does happen where they take the most seasoned person who's kind of dominating the incident response anyways because they got the most experience and the junior people are kind of just paying attention but maybe not developing as well and when you pull that person out you actually get to see that the the other people whose voices were being kind of quelled now have to speak up now have to think they might identify some gaps in their own workflows because they were just being spoon fed the answers and it's just like reality because again like legal's not going to ask the junior analyst to come in and brief him the ceo isn't calling the junior analyst they're calling the lead of the SecOps ops team and telling them to give us an update we're freaking out over here so th- th- that is one way to nice. kind of integrate these indirect elements into a game
1: so with the red versus blue game specifically what is the the technical benchmark that you need in order to be able to benefit from that game, or to be able to play it the first time.
2: It's interesting. The platform was actually built for supporting different levels of experience. You know, I'm a senior practitioner, so I'll just fire up the game and dive right in and go go live and, and start playing and doing all these other things. But if you are new to the field or a junior analyst, and you're using the platform more to develop your skills, be able to get familiar with certain kind of incidents that way when you see them in real life you're not freaking out the game has a bunch of built-in knowledge modules meaning like so if it says like you know whatever um like say you're playing the attacker and you have a drop malicious usb feature right that's a that's a that's a action you can play in the game you might not even know what a usb is honestly right Or you may not understand why you would drop it in the parking lot. So you can click on it, just like anything in the game. You can click on it and it'll pull up a full kind of educational Wikipedia almost, right? And it'll explain what it is that you're doing, what the action is. And then kind of the background and reasoning behind why you would do an attack like that. And it really helps inform twofold. One, it informs an end user on awareness. This is what this is. And then secondly, it'll help inform their decision-making within the game. Does it make sense to perform this right now?
1: In a lot of ways, I think that simulations like the Red vs. Blue game, self-contained capture-the-flag games and CTFs at conferences, and even custom-made team-based card games can be a key part of the future of training and recruiting for cybersecurity. I believe that these kind of environments are a great on-ramp for future cybersecurity professionals. That gamification aspect makes it fun and above all, it's safe and legal. That's something that didn't really exist 10 or 20 years ago. And so now there's this entire generation of up-and-comers who can satisfy the curiosity of what it feels like to hack a system in ways that won't get them arrested. And yeah, that's a good thing because curiosity without a safe outlet has gotten a lot of people in trouble. And so now it's up to us within the field to find ways to nurture that curiosity and bring people into the profession. Okay, before we end today, there's one more thing that I'd like to file under the fun and games category. And that's what I like to call magical thinking. And by that I mean being able to look at situations in a way that a sleight-of-hand magician was, looking for ways to manage and manipulate other people's attention. I think this is really important because it has a natural linkage to social engineering. And like lockpicking, it's an analog. You can learn card tricks, coin tricks, or other slides to help you illustrate a point that may just give you a bit of insight into how people think and can be deceived. And it can also help you look for unexpected ways to interact with people and environments. Two of my favorite types of magical thinking are mentalism, which is really just simulated mind reading using sleight of hand and other deceptive methods, and pickpocketing, which is all about attention management. We don't have a lot of time to get into this today, But I'm planning a future episode that I've tentatively titled The Theater of the Mind that will explore the connection between magical thinking and social engineering. But for now, I'll leave you with a few thoughts from Chris Kirsch. I interviewed Chris in Season 1, Episode 6, and the title of that episode was Embrace an Attacker Mindset to Improve Security. Chris is the co-founder and CEO of Rumble. That's a cybersecurity company focused on network asset discovery. And he's also another social engineering capture the flag winner. Chris won that in 2015. Let's hear from Chris.
5: Pickpocketing I got into because my dad got uh, pickpocketed on the metro in Paris right next to me. And I, first of all, I wanted to understand how do I protect against that? But then I quickly got into the other side of Hey, how do you actually pickpocket, and how does that work? So I went pretty deep on that. I actually have a a talk online that I gave at the Layer Eight conference uh, on on how to pickpocket and how that works. And I did that from the perspective of red teaming. All right. So Luke, can you tell me, like, have you ever been pickpocketed? I have not. You have not. Okay. So uh, most the whole pickpocketing thing also got me then back into magic because a lot of the pickpocketing resources were uh, only available on magic sites, especially the stage pick bucketing. And magic has a lot of parallels to security. For example, you can play with expectations uh, that people have. And if you know what expectations they have, then you can use that to trick them. So for example, if you have a card and it shows the back of that card, people assume that there is a picture on the other side, like a seven of clubs or something like that. And magicians sometimes use what's called double backers, uh, which have the backside on both sides to trick people and and perform a trick. So if you think about that and take that into a security and social engineering context, if you're walking into a building with an access card that's supposed to have a picture on one side and a name and a logo, but you just have a blank card, people will just assume that your your access badge is flipped. Right? So you can actually walk into the building without even having the right picture on the card for casual inspection. Of course, if if somebody looks at the card closely, they will figure it out. But that's an example where you can play with people's expectations. Uh, Other areas are when you take what people think is good and secure, uh, like a known good routine, and you play with that. So for example, you can shuffle the deck and you can, for example, Uh, do a false shuffle where the the motion looks exactly the same of a normal shuffle, and they assume that that's good. But uh, you're actually not changing the order of the deck or you're preserving the order on the top of the deck. Uh, Another uh, interesting thing is if you take a fresh deck out of the package, right, and it's in what we call a new deck order. So it's sorted by numbers and by suits. How many times do you have to cut that to get to a fully random order. And I'll give two beats to the audience to think about that. Cutting the deck only changes the the starting card, but it doesn't change the order of the card. If you think back, you know, some people might not remember this, but for people who remember what a Rolodex looks like, you have a rolodex that has all of these cards and they're all on a on a wheel and you can spin around the wheel and you have basically people's business cards on there you can spin the wheel 20 times 50 times 100 times the order of the cards doesn't change when you cut a deck it's the same thing you're only changing the starting point of where the deck is so the answer is if you cut a deck in new deck order a uh, hundred times it'll still have the same order, and if you, for example, peek the bottom card, tilt the deck so that you can see the bottom card, now you can infer what the top card is. And so if you apply that same thing, like taking a known good routine and you apply it to hacking, there is one example that Kevin Mitnick did. uh, It's from one of his books. I don't remember which one, where he basically phones somebody up and he tells them, hey, don't tell me your password because that's not secure. Known good routine, right? but I want to check out that your backup worked correctly. So can you do me a favor and can you change your password to XYZ password for the next five minutes and then change it back after I check it, right? So what he then did on the other end, of course, is he got access to the system using the password that he gave them and then, you know, maybe created another account or got persistence somewhere in in a different way and then ask them to change it back. So now they were in a known good state. They didn't break the, uh, the known good routine of not giving out their password, and they thought they were good. Those are really interesting things where, where you have parallels with ma- magic, for example, with a shuffling or, or other things.
1: Yeah, that playing with known good routines and exploiting expectations is really powerful. Any other examples that you have for us?
5: Yeah, so in mentalism or also some magic routines, there is this concept of a one ahead routine. So where you're actually one step ahead of the audience because you already loaded something somewhere or you already peaked something somewhere and they think you still need to perform the act, right? Um, I think there is a, a parallel here with some of the spam messages that some people are getting where the, the message basically tells them, Hey, you've been hacked and like. We're going to leak all of your information and your dirty videos online unless you pay us. And as a proof, they say, here's proof that we hacked you and because this is your password. So when people read that, they think, oh my God, I've been hacked and the proof is the password. But what actually happens is that their password got breached long ago on a third party site and it was published. And the hackers just took the dump of the email and password combinations and then use that to send out personalized email messages, so basically a, a mail merge, to all of these people. And if people don't know that you can find one's password on the web associated with an email address, their their mind will automatically assume that they've been hacked.
1: Well, that's about all the time that we have for today. I'm going to give Aleith Dennis the last word. And then i'll be back to wrap up with a few closing
3: thoughts during the course of the competition it's like me versus them and that's kind of how the dynamic of the conversation is i'm trying to get the information out of you and i win points if i get it it's a different mindset when you're working for clients because we're all on the same team like if they stop me it's freaking awesome for them and i like putting that in the report that they stopped me because I want to give them a report that makes them feel good about how well they have prepared to defend against these things. And especially if I've done the training, like if I've done the security awareness training and I pull them on my vision calls or through, you know, emails and have them click on the links then I did a terrible job training them. And that's a problem. <laughs>
1: And that's all for today's show. I hope this was able to help you have an appreciation for some of the fun and interesting ways that we can learn about cybersecurity, teach others some fundamental concepts and up-level our own skills. It's really encouraging to see some of the innovation going on in this space right now. New games and capture the flag competitions all continue to improve year over year. And as I said earlier in the show, I think all of this is really important because it gives people safe, legal, and fun ways to learn and practice cybersecurity skills and also to bring new people into the profession. And with that, thanks so much for listening and thank you to my guests, Elise Dennis, Chris Kirsch, Deviant Olaf, and Gerald Osier. As usual, you can check the show notes for all the relevant links and references to the topics that we covered today. If you've been enjoying Eighth Layer Insights and you want to know how you can help make the show successful, I've got an easy ask for you. Just tell a friend to listen. Seriously, that would be an amazing help for me as I continue to build the Eighth Layer Insights audience and community. So if you would recommend the show to at least one other person this week. And of course, if you haven't yet, please go ahead and subscribe or follow wherever you like to get your podcasts. If you wanna connect with me, feel free to do so. You can find my contact information at the very bottom of the show notes for this episode. This show was written, recorded, sound designed and edited by me, Perry Carpenter. Artwork for Eighth Layer Insights is designed by Chris Machowski at ransomware.net, that's W E A R, and Mia Rune at miaRune.com. The Eighth Layer Insights theme song was composed and performed by Marcus Mosquet. Until next time, I'm Perry Carpenter, signing off.